We're going under the hood with Dr. Sunshine, where we explore topics that are relevant to STEM professionals with intersecting identities. Thank you for listening. Welcome back everyone to Under the Hood. And just to remind you, this is a space for aspiring current or retired STEM students and professionals. It's also a space for friends and family of STEM people where you can hear first-hand experiences and accounts of the behind-the-scenes experiences of the people you care about who have dedicated their working lives to careers in STEM. So in today's episode, I am recapping my first year in the Bay Area. So it's just under a year. I moved in July of 2021. And of course, the pandemic is still raging and it was raging when I moved to the Bay Area. The University of California, Berkeley had just reopened its doors in mid-June, so about a couple weeks before I officially relocated. And they were spinning up after 15 months of quarantine. So of course, operations were strained and everyone was getting their footing People were sick and um, overall it was a pretty trying period so not only that um, I had just moved to a new city that I'd never really visited and um, it was really disorienting so while I'm learning a new campus a new job a new city um, it was quite jarring so um, for those of you that may find yourself in this situation my recommendation um, is to quickly establish a new routine. So try to get into the habit of doing the some things repetitively, getting up at the same time to establish some normalcy. So the, some of the things I did was I went to work five days a week because I live really close to campus. And I tried to quickly find a few places to visit regularly. Um, like my favorite grocery store, my favorite home goods store, um, and my favorite restaurants. And I'd also say that my saving grace was joining my gym, which has a lot of social activities and allowed me to stay mentally and physically healthy during the transition. So, what is the first thing that I did um, upon ramping up at UC Berkeley in the middle of my pre-tenured career as a faculty member in engineering. Well, the first thing I did was clean up my student office space, okay? This was priority number one for me because I wanted my graduate researchers to feel welcome, comfortable, and get used to being back on campus because it was also a transition for them as well. So as you can see, for those of you that are watching the, the video, you can see here that the office space was a time capsule from March of 2020. There were several items left behind from the previous students who had long graduated during the pandemic, um, but they really had no need to return for their things. They had moved on with their lives. So my first order of business was to clean up this space. Um, and actually, um, I enjoyed this process. This 
um, made me feel connected to the space. It helped me to see what types of items um, that the students uh, collected and it gave me, gave me a sense of the culture of Berkeley and the culture of the civil and environmental engineering department. It also allowed me to build a sense of ownership and responsibility for the space. And most of all, I had my uh, graduate students and staff in mind. Um, I wanted the best for them. Um, and so I wanted to make sure that the space had a special touch. And so the final result of the student and staff lab space is what you see here. Um, instead of having the zigzag formation, I lined up the cubicles against the wall and um, purchased a um, collaboration space or furniture for a collaboration space um, in the center where we have our group meetings where um, we will eventually do outreach and all types of activities for um, our visitors. And so for those of you that are not familiar, redoing this space, um, um, I had to work with a design firm, One Workplace. Um, I don't, in, this is not an endorsement, but this is the firm that's contracted with Berkeley. And so they actually rendered this space and I had two options. I let my grad student um, help me choose. Um, e, if you're listening, thank you. And um, this is the vision that came to life after a few months of putting in a few work orders, painting the walls, um, getting the ethernet set up, and waxing the floors. And um, my staff so far um, have some pos they have positive things to say about the space, um, and I'm, I'm really happy about that. So um, shortly after finishing up the student lab space, or the student workspace, um, it was time to renovate the chemical wet lab space. So for those of you that are looking at the video, you can see here the before picture on the left and the after picture on the right. Um, so um, I'm really proud of this space. Um, I worked once again with the um, an outside contractor um, and our facilities coordinator, we planned the space, um, we uh, worked hand in hand to make sure that um, the vision came to life. Um, and as you can see, there was a bit of asbestos abatement, um, all of the cabinets and countertops have been exchanged. The, um, the, ca the upper cabinets have also been exchanged um, and we have a brand new fume hood. So I'm really grateful for this space. And so just as a note to um, assistant professors, okay, whether you are in your first year and you're newly arrived or you are uh, moving from one institution to another, um, you should expect to have a space that is up to par with the most renovated space in your department. Um, this is something that you should advocate for. Um, not only is this uh, just general good pr best practices um, as someone who is conducting cutting edge research, but this also helps to keep your students' morale high. You know, it's, it's nothing, there's nothing more disappointing than um, uh, a student not feeling like they 
have access to um, the best space possible to conduct research and carry out their vision. And so now that we're all settled in, I'm actually really happy to see how everything turned out. And um, I would like to thank the CEE staff for making sure that our vision came to life in a timely manner. All right, so the next thing I wanna talk about are recommendations for newly arrived faculty. So you're going to want to talk to your department chair or any other close colleague about how to find the following people, okay? So the first person you wanna to talk to or find is the facilities coordinator, okay? So the facilities coordinator is the person that handles your furniture purchases, um, furniture recycling, work orders, so putting in uh, requests for repairs, um, painting, etc. And this is the person that's going to take care of the physical space for your office and your students' offices. The next person that it's important to communicate with is the laboratory safety coordinator, okay? Um, as you can imagine, this is the person that's going to help you coordinate laboratory training for your students and make sure that you have the proper certifications for your wet lab, your biochemical lab, etc. The next person you, or people that you want to find are the pre-award and post-award coordinators. Now this could be one person or this could be multiple people. So pre-award people coordinate the submission of your uh, proposals, the submission of your responses to requests for applications, RFAs. So this is everything that happens before an award is uh, granted to you as through your institution. Your post-award coordinator is the person that is going to communicate with the sponsor and make sure that the agreements are put in place to be legally um, able to accept funds for your research. Okay, so as professors, we do not directly submit grants most of the time, and we do not directly spend the money that comes from those grants. Um, the process is very uh, transparent and strict so that um, research activities are uh, on the up and up. So your pre-award and post-award coordinator, who may be the same person, they're going to handle that paperwork, all right? And so the, the more resources you have for award coordination, the easier things are for a professor because you can simply focus on um, intellectual contributions to your work and not necessarily the administrative parts of submitting grants and winning grants. So those are the people that you're going to want to find. And so now I'm going to talk about processes. The first important process that I recommend that you figure out or talk to someone about is the hiring of your graduate researchers. Um, so especially professors who are transferring from another institution and you have a student that is transferring with you, it's super important to make sure that the hiring process is done quickly and, and efficiently because the students are also moving and their moves can be even more stressful than us as professors because they don't get moving assistance. So 
And if they're international, they may not have the support that um, is needed to carry out a cross-country move. So the students may not be focused on making sure that their first paycheck comes in on time. So you may need to step in and facilitate and make sure that they are going to receive their payments on time. Um, so I am especially sensitive to making sure that you know students are able to receive the funding that they need to get as stable as possible as quickly as possible. All right, the next process-based thing that you wanna do immediately is to learn how to make purchases. So I, uh, I said this earlier, professors do not directly make purchases. We go through a system of checks and balances and it is hardly straightforward. So um, two things could happen. You may be required to submit purchase requests every time to what's called your procurement unit. Um, and so those uh, requests go through the unit, they approve it, and then they submit the, uh, the purchase order on your behalf. Or you could use what's called a pro card. There may be a system where you use a university issued credit card to make purchases and then those purchases are resolved at the end of the month and they have to balance and I find that while this is more convenient this could be um, a bit stressful because you have to make sure that you are keeping up with all of the receipts and the invoices at the end of the month and some professors delegate purchasing to students and if the students aren't keeping up with those receipts um, the end of the the end of the month uh, resolution of that that bill may be um, um, a little bit complicated all right and so I also recommend finding uh, these uh, department resources and that is your mailbox so that you can start to receive uh, correspondence in the mail um, from your professional organization so you're going to want to change your mailing address um, as quickly as possible find the break room because there may be um, snacks and coffee which is really clutch for a new professor because we oftentimes forget to eat um, we're not very good about um, balancing our food breaks and so the um, the CEE break room actually happens to be really awesome Thanks, Pam. Um, I really enjoyed the snacks in there. Also, you want to find the coffee machine uh, room, which usually has your um, coffee supplies, pens, pencils, etc., um, and perhaps PPE if you're running low on masks or you forget one. And so you'd actually be surprised how quickly or how often those things go overlooked, and you'll look up and the semester is over with, and you still don't know where your mailbox is. I'll also say the next thing that you need to figure out is about campus parking, okay? So parking is not guaranteed to be free when you work at a university. So you'll need to figure out if you need a permit right away because you will get ticketed right away. And that was my experience. Um, and lastly, if it is available, you're going to want to secure your faculty handbook um, I find that handbooks that are really nicely compiled will have all the information and resources you need um, in regard to um, your computers, uh, getting your net ID established, 
etc. And this can really help speed up your transition. All right, so transitioning into a discussion about housing in the Bay Area. Um, this is going to be a labor of love because housing is a very touchy subject. Um, for those of us that live here, you know what I mean. So the Berkeley housing market is extremely tough, all right? And this area is much, much less affordable than the place where I moved from, which is the Inland Empire. And so just a word about renting. Um, renting is actually can be pretty risky in the Bay Area um, for a number of reasons, but I'd say mainly it's risky for your mental health if you're used to paying um, a little bit less um, and to get more space. So not only is it more expensive here, the places you're renting can be quite small. And so um, many people resort to moving a little bit further away and having a longer commute. Um, I did a podcast um, at last season about uh, how to find the middle ground for uh, where you should live. And as it turns out, um, I'm going to opt for a longer commute um, to have a little bit more space and um, a little bit more peace of mind. So my lab operates under hybrid conditions. So some days I work from home and some days I'm in person, but I, I think it's very important to still have in-person group meetings and see my students, um, get in the lab, do some cleanup myself, etc. And so I wanted to, now I wanna take some time to um, give a warning to some people that may be moving to the Bay Area or moving to the Berkeley area to go to school or to become a faculty member specifically. So you wanna be very, very vigilant about pre-screening for vermin. Yes, vermin when it comes to renting or even buying in Berkeley. Okay, so for some reason, all right, rats, insects, spiders are pretty commonplace for rental properties in Berkeley. And I have found on multiple occasions that the landlords are fairly apathetic to this uh, situation. It's very sad for our students who have to live this way. Um, and so, for you all's information, the California tenant law cites that the presence of vermin um, is actually unlawful, especially when it is not addressed um, by the landlord when the tenant brings up that issue. Okay, so if you're living in this, if you're in a situation where there's vermin, um, which includes insects and spiders, and you tell your landlord and they don't. Uh, address it, then they are violating your rights as a California tenant. So for those students or parents of students who are moving to Berkeley, please be especially cautious 
when you are uh, figuring out your rental situation um, because you could get caught up in um, um, a pretty uh, dangerous uh, and just uncomfortable situation and you should not hesitate to understand your rights as a tenant and advocate for yourself um, when it comes to housing. So that was a bit about renting and now I'm going to talk about buying property in the Bay Area. Well, this is a pretty sore subject, but we've got to talk about it. Well, the market for buying homes is uh, obviously quite strained here in the Bay Area, uh, particularly for the uh, cities and properties that are closer to the shore. So the closer you get to the water, um, the prices are going to rise. Um, the weather is a little bit better closer to the water. It's cooler. The temperatures are uh, moderated by the onshore flow from the bay. So uh, to my surprise, um, the homes and the condos that would have been uh, in my purview were um, priced as high as $800 per square foot. Okay, this is extremely expensive. Okay, you should not pay any more than $300 per square foot. And the, even that's expensive outside of um, California. So I saw um, those rates of $800 per square foot in the normally affordable places like Oakland. So uh, this was pretty inconvenient and it was really uh, discouraging, um, particularly if for those for uh, people that want to buy. Um, and so I'd like to talk about uh, how a first time home buyer who moves to this area um, for a job like a faculty position may fare. Okay, so for one, if you're a first generation, and that means your parents didn't go to college and you may not have the support from your family financially and, and support otherwise, um, entering the housing market for the first time here is pretty much impossible, okay? Um, without additional uh, financial resources, okay? So the down payment, okay, is really what keeps people from entering the housing market here. With properties being $1 million and above, you most banks require that you put down 10% uh, or more to avoid private mortgage insurance. And so um, if you don't have a special mortgage uh, program through your, through your institution, you um, are, it's pretty hard to, or if you're a veteran, if you're not a veteran, it could be pretty hard to come up with the down payment requirements um, in your, your average bank loans. And so first time faculty or first time home buying new faculty often or may get stuck renting. Okay, when you're moving to a place like a, the Bay Area um, during a time in their lives when they probably want to establish permanent roots and they want to start earning equity in property after they've worked really hard to earn a terminal degree like a PhD and um, starting their permanent position. You know, it could be 
it can feel like much like arrested development to continue to have to rent um, once you have established yourself in your permanent position. So um, I'd like to reiterate once again, the biggest obstacle most of the time um, for buying a home is the down payment. Okay. The, um, your mortgage or most mortgages in reasonably priced homes are the same or even less than what one would pay for the monthly rent for a two bedroom apartment. Okay. And that usually happens when you can make a sizable down payment for a home. Unfortunately, for those of you that don't know, a professor, starting professor's salary, um, and being on a starting professor's salary, um, it could take a number of years, five plus years, unless you're saving aggressively to have the money that you need for a down payment for homes in the Bay Area. Okay, that's for people that don't have outside help, they don't have housing stipends, and they don't have down payment gifts from family. And so um, that's a one income household. And those are some of the challenges that a one income household may face. Um, the two income household may be a little bit better, especially if um, one, the, one of the incomes comes from the tech industry. And so I would say those people have um, a better shot at being eligible for buying a home. Um, but then you'll have to fa factor in the fact that if there are child care costs um, that fall on the household in the Bay Area, that is also going to strain um, chances to buy a home. That wraps up the housing discussion. And now it's time to go under the hood. And we're going to have a candid conversation about my experiences at UC Riverside versus my experiences at UC Berkeley. So this is the Cal versus Riverside um, compare and contrast. All right. And so that's the purpose of this podcast is to give you the behind the scenes about what happens to um, women of color in academia. All right. So the first thing I'll talk about is um, the tenure clock. All right. And so this is not necessarily a comparison, but since I moved, my tenure clock is impacted. Okay. So usually it takes about six years to get promoted. That is the usual timeline, or at least that's the usual timeline in the UC system. All right. And so as someone who moved institutions within the UC system, my tenure clock does not restart. Okay. So I'm fine with that. Um, uh, the, the process is actually quite transparent and democratic in the UC system, which is very good for BIPOC faculty. Um, so for those of you, maybe that you're not necessarily in the UC system, but you are moving institutions before you get promoted, okay? You can likely expect to have disruptions in your research productivity and an extension of your timeline to tenure okay so obviously this is going to be nuanced and it depends on what type of research you do so if you're a computational researcher your spin-up time may not be as long 
but if you're a wet lab person or you require specialized equipment, this could take um, a little bit longer. Your timeline could be longer. Um, your tenure clock also depends on the speed at which your institution carries out onboarding and renovations and um, all of this is going to factor into um, how fast you can progress you know as a function of external uh, stressors now if you um, were sitting on a, a, a ton of ideas at your old institution and you were just waiting to pop those papers out at your new institution you could put your head down get the papers out um, and perhaps still be on time for your original promotion schedule but I'd say in the grand scheme um, the a one to two year difference in promotion okay when you're being paid appropriately as an assistant professor is not too bad okay um, when things when the one to two year delay matter is when you are um, in a not so great situation as an assistant professor okay the situations for which promotion will make your life better um, would prompt you to want to get promoted a little bit sooner sooner but if you're in an institution that actually um, seeks to protect your time as a junior faculty the one to two year difference doesn't matter so um, for those of you that um, are maybe in, maybe in a situation where um, the junior faculty or the untenured faculty seemingly they don't have voting rights in the department or you notice that they are doing more service and more teaching than the promoted tenured uh, faculty um, this could make you sensitive to your promotion timeline all right so i just like to say um, for my current department at berkeley the culture is to support junior faculty, protect their time, and make sure that we have adequate time to build our research portfolios. Um, and that means that they also um, require us to carry a, a fairly reasonable one-one course load. And that means one course in the fall and one course in the spring, which is consistent over your pre-tenure career. So I'd say this is a benefit um, um, when comparing uh, um, Riverside versus Berkeley. The next thing I want to talk about is the teaching and the difference in teaching at the two institutions. Okay, so Riverside is on the quarter system and Berkeley is on the semester system and these two systems um, are very different as both teacher and as student. For those of you that may be outside of the U.S., the quarters in the UC system are 10 weeks long, so three quarters per year, and the uh, semesters are 15 weeks long, 15 to 16 weeks long in the semester, okay? So I'll explain to you uh, the, the implications for that, all right? So for example, for a core chemical engineering course at Riverside, um, in 10 weeks, the pace 
I feel is entirely too fast for students that are um, trying to build meaningful long-term attachments to the material. So 10 weeks in thermodynamics is hardly enough time to uh, cover uh, all of the material um, that we need to cover and so it ends up being too fast and the students get frustrated because they nothing or hard, not much is sticking. And so in comparison, the semester system um, is, like I said, 15 to 16 weeks. And um, when you're in it, it may seem like it's prolonged. Well, so as a student, I, I studied under this semester system and I thought it was really long, but it's actually a great immersion into the material. And without those tight time constraints, the professor is actually able to take a deep dive into the material. And I find that the, the learning and the retention of knowledge is better under the semester system. And so uh, this has been a, 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 a good experience so far under the semester system. And I think it's better for both the instructors and the students. Now the next thing I'll compare are the resources, okay? So just hands down, there are more resources, both financial and intellectual at the Berkeley campus. I will uh, be nuanced here and say that uh, that's due to a couple of different factors, both positive and negative, okay? So there are some state funding imbalances when it comes to the monies that come directly to the campuses to support operations from the state budget. Um, most campuses operate such that you get a number of uh, a set number of money per student. And I think the state student funding per student is a little bit less in Riverside than it is for Berkeley, which uh, uh, over time uh, leads to uh, pretty stark uh, experiences at, at both institutions. And so um, there is a fight or a, uh, an effort currently to, to resolve those imbalances. And I do support um, more funding uh, to go to the, both the Riverside and Merced campuses who are currently being in, impacted by that um, inequity. Um, the second factor um, that lends Berkeley to have more resources are the donations from the alumni, all right, and other benefactors. So people are highly likely to make donations um, that measure in the seven and eight figures to Berkeley, um, maybe even nine figures. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> that uh, has implications for the resources that are available to students, staff, and faculty. Um, and for those professors that are curious, yes, that does extend to the startup packages. The startup packages scale um, according to this 
resource difference as well. So the startup packages are a little bit higher at Berkeley than they are for Riverside. The next thing I'll talk about um, is the cultural difference. Okay. So I was at a chemical and environmental engineering department at Riverside and an I am now in a civil and environmental engineering department at Berkeley. So both departments uh, house environmental engineering, but the paired discipline can really impact the culture and dynamic of the entire department. So chemical and civil engineering are, there, are very different disciplines with very different paces and goals, okay? so. Chemical engineering stems from the goal of uh, generally to create materials. And those materials and the creation of processes go on to support for-profit entities and institutions. On the other hand, civil engineering, most of that work is public-facing and service oriented. So public works, um, sewer systems, transportation networks. And so these are n oftentimes uh, not necessarily for profit. There can be profit oriented uh, aspects of civil engineering, but largely we seek to serve the public. And so as such, this is going to lend to different cultures between the two departments, okay? So overall, the chemical engineering space is very competitive and um, a little bit uh, brutal at times, whereas I have found that the civil engineering environment is more cooperative, okay? And overall, there is a focus on the betterment of the whole over the individual. So in general, I prefer to work amongst the civil engineers. Um, as also, this was my formal training in undergraduate and graduate school. The next thing I want to talk about is the commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion and the differences across the campuses. Okay? So, DEI, or diversity, equity, and inclusion, manifested very differently at the two institutions, okay? So the first thing I noticed is that Berkeley branded DEI differently, okay? So their version of DEI is known as DEIB, and the B stands for belonging. I had never seen belonging as part of um, this effort. And so that alluded to me or that let me know that Berkeley was actually fairly thoughtful in how it sought to implement um, diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts because belonging is also a very key element of making sure that BIPOC individuals um, and women feel comfortable in spaces that are traditionally um, not uh, highly populated by us, okay? So in my experience with Berkeley, DEIB was a consistent theme throughout the interview process, 
throughout the hiring process, onboarding and ramp up, and throughout my first year as a faculty member at Berkeley. I'm extremely appreciative of this. All right, and so what I observed was that DEIB was at the forefront of Berkeley's, uh, the entire community's communication. It was prioritized um, in the communication from the provost, from the dean of my college, from my chair, from faculty, from students, um, just at every rank. And so I find that the Berkeley community is very acutely aware um, of how DEIB is implemented and they understand how to um, operate in this spaces to ensure that the spaces are inclusive and equitable. And even if there are missteps, um, there are swift and quick actions to correct any missteps. And so far, overall, I have felt very welcome. On the other hand, um, my experience at UC Riverside was not as smooth when it came to DEI. Um, by nature of the hiring opportunity at UCR, I was labeled as a diversity hire, okay? For those BIPOC academics that um, are early career and you have not gotten a faculty position, this is not something that you want to, to uh, uh, experience. You don't want to be labeled as a diversity hire, okay? Um, on the like on the opposite hand, um, I am just a regular hire and a faculty member at Berkeley, just like everyone else. Okay, I think being a diversity hire or labeled as such is problematic because then your colleagues and people who have a certain belief about DEI, they're going to think and that you are only hired for your diversity. So essentially you're hired for because of your race, your gender, orientation, etc. And sometimes that leads to those people with those beliefs not having a respect for your scholarship. Okay? And that in the long run is hurtful for your prom promotion prospects. And so um I urge any BIPOC or women faculty uh that are interviewing for a position um, to try to politely um, ask um, if your hire is intended to meet a diversity quota, okay? If it's not obvious. So sometimes the title of the hire um, implies that the entity, the department is looking for um, more diverse candidates, okay? But it's better to know this up front so that you can preempt any uh, potentially negative experiences that precipitate from um, this type of hire, okay? And so if you need more context for what happens when you're labeled as a diversity hire, I've explained um, how that precipitates. Um, if you go to my Twitter, at Dr. Sunshine, um, you will see where I've responded to uh, a very public controversy um, involving 
the perception of DEI in relation to the Berkeley Atmospheric Sciences Center controversy that happened in October of 2021, right? And so for those of you that are not familiar, um, there was some controversy surrounding the invitation of a certain climate scientist to give a talk at the, the Berkeley Atmospheric Sciences Center seminar, okay? And so that climate scientist's viewpoints on DEI, um, I will say, are actually very prevalent on UCR's campus. And that may be surprising to hear since UCR is a minority serving institution, okay? So this can actually be a dangerous combination. It could be dangerous for an MSI to have faculty who share misgivings about DEI efforts, okay? I think it is extremely important that those faculty members that actually share an identity with, with the students of an MSI to be treated well, to be treated as equals because those faculty need to be there for representation. Students need to be able to connect with professors with shared identity, right? And so when uh, professors who are seemingly diversity hires are, are not treated as such, um, the performance is not as good as it could be if they were performing in a somewhat neutral environment where their scholarship is respected and where they are not ultimately stigmatized for being a hire for uh, increasing diversity. And so I'd say this viewpoint actually uh, causes the, the students to suffer because when a faculty member doesn't feel welcome, they ultimately find somewhere else to go. They find somewhere else to work and the students no longer have that representation. So if any administrator is listening to this podcast, it's important that belonging is also at the forefront of your DEI efforts, okay? Because if that faculty member doesn't feel like they belong there, they will find other options. So, that wraps up my um, thoughts and experiences about transitioning to a new university during a pandemic before my tenure review. So that is my mid pre-tenure wrap up for year one. Um, if you have any other questions or if you feel like there's something that I missed or I could touch on more, feel free to drop a comment below and let me know what you think. You just listened to episode eight of Under the Hood. All views expressed in this video are my own and do not reflect that of my institution currently or previously. Be sure to like the video, share, and subscribe to this channel for more content, and I'll see you in the next video.